0: we are honored to be here this morning, this beautiful morning that you have made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. We want to offer up these words of worship, our voices, and our hands to you because you are a worthy God. And so we just thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather and worship your name. and will turn high. And look at the vastness of your creation, Father God, and we can only attempt to see how big you you truly are. You are a big God. And so we just feel so small, but with you, our eyes focused on you, Lord. And we are so loved, and we know it, so how can such a big God love us? But you do. We are astonished that you should care for us. And how how could it even be that you would die for us, and you would send your son for us? But you did. So in that power we stand, and we thank you for that sacrifice. We're going to call the ushers forward at this time, please, to take the offering. Lord, we just pray for this offering, we pray, we know that you have gone before it, and um, you have made a way for it. We thank you that we have the opportunity to give to your kingdom, and we pray for its purpose and its intended purpose, um, its use, Lord. We pray, um, and we thank you, Lord, for the, the, the responsibility over it, Lord, that you have given us, this church. And we love you and we just pray that it blesses you tremendously.
1: In Jesus' name, amen. So are you.
0: to a holy mind God exalt, that we exalt, me. we choose to exalt I above exalt all me. else circumstances, oh, problems that we just run into. I exalt, we exalt our God I
1: over every little detail in our I life.
0: how wide, how long, how high, how deep your love goes for us. Lord, we love your word. We thank you for the wisdom and the understanding that it brings to our lives. We thank you for the knowledge you have graciously given to us through it. We praise your holy name. Now speak to us through your servant Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you take a moment and just freak one another in the love of the
1: world? Who are you? How are you? You're an itch. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Hi, Randy. Uh, Hi, oh, you're so <laughs> grown up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, we're going to have you some more. you. Good morning.
2: Larry. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Larry, I'll just use this. <laughs> Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Hi. Hi, Dan. How are you? A couple of announcements that didn't make it up on the screen behind me this morning, or maybe they did. Did they? They did. I'm just re-announcing them just in case you guys didn't read it. So uh, the two things are 29 days circle of prayer is going to be starting on February 1. And so basically, this is if you guys sign up, you'll receive an email every day. And it's just about topics or things to pray about. So collectively, we're going to separately, collectively pray together remotely, virtually, uh-huh. okay? Yeah. So it's going to be a virtual collective prayer gathering or something like that. Uh-huh. But that's going to start on February 1. And uh, for both the announcements, you can sign up for the items on the kiosk that are there in the back. And if you guys need any help, to use those things to sign up, Dan would be more than happy to help you with the technology. He is our technology go-to guy. Uh, The other thing that's coming up in February is the Foster's Festival. Now we've done this for three years now? Three, four, 15? We've done it for a number of years now where we've been a part of it and organized all the volunteers and basically this is where uh, Arizona for Children, Foster's group, they get together once a year, and they have a big festival down at Enchanted Island. And we do things like uh, cook, clean, run around, smile, help. Yeah, I'm looking looking at Carly again, for what are all the things. I've been there every year, but I don't know what we do. I'm just there. Um, and it's, it's actually a great time to, to just spend in, in fellowship and service, and just to get to see some of these kids, the smiling faces. And, and help out a cause that you know we're trying to help these kids get placement not only in where they're at, but where they're gonna go in life. And the whole idea is to have a bunch of different um, opportunities for them to see what the next steps are as they age out of the foster system. So encourage you to do that, to sign up in the back. So those are the two things. Uh, as you know, Pastor Dennis is in the Holy Land with, uh, with a number of our other brothers and sisters. And they're enjoying their time there. So uh, we have a guest pastor, Pastor Dan Esch, who will be teaching us this morning. So uh, before we welcome him up, let's pray one more time. can't have too much prayer, right? Right. All right, let's go before the Lord. Father, we come before you and we just once again offer our praise and our worship and our thanks to you. And we pray that your spirit would be here today with with all of us, working in us, working through us, and uh, leading us in all things. And I pray that you would... Bless Pastor Dan as he comes up and teaches your word uh, in power and in might and strength. And we just again praise you because you are so worthy uh, of our praise. We pray these things in your son's holy and mighty name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
3: Oh, good morning. Good morning. I... Genuinely look forward. Every, every time I, I see that email in my email box, um, and it says Calvary Arrowhead, and I know that it's an invitation to come and teach, I genuinely get excited because every time my family and I come, it feels like one of those trips where you go and you see family that you just don't see enough. You want to spend more time with them, but you just don't don't see them very often. So I I, I genuinely enjoy our time together. So uh, thanks for just being such a hospitable. Uh, family, um, honestly, the this particular message has uh, changed probably seven times in the last week as the Lord's really? kind of been stirring things in my mind, and it, it turned into uh, a teaching uh, about Jesus calming the storm, which He absolutely does, into something that became deeply personal. And I figure that uh, I'm not going to see you guys again for a while, so I can be a little bit transparent. I mean, I'll see you next Sunday, but then after that, you know, there's, there's not going to be too much judgment. But uh, um, if I could pray one more time, I think that's going to be necessary so that I can get through this. Um, I'm not a big crier, but I have a bad feeling about this. So uh, let, let, let's pray. God, thank you for the time that you're giving the Templetons to just enjoy growing in their understanding of who you are through the the tangible uh, locations that they are experiencing. Um, Just your goodness and your love and and the way that you worked uh, thousands of years ago and and you continue to work now. I know that you are just deepening their faith through those experiences. I pray that you would protect them, that you continue to work out the details of that trip, Lord. Now, God, I just ask you to speak. I, I ask you to just have your way with this morning's message, Lord. I, I pray that I'm able to step aside, Lord, and that Amen. you would just your word would go forth and, uh, and you would grow us and you would mature us and you'd make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Amen. Lord, we love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so what I have before me right now um, is really three years, the last three years of my life, distilled into probably two teachings. And like I said, it's deeply personal because I don't know about you guys, time just seems to be moving more and more quickly, exponentially moving more and more quickly. I, I think when I had my first son is when time started to speed up. As a kid, summertime spent, felt like years. Um, but as you get older, you start living, and in, in days become weeks, and weeks become months. And next thing you know, you're pushing 40, and, and the kids that you had in your youth group are having kids, and they're starting youth group, and, and time just continues to move uh, so quickly. So I, the Lord kind of gave me a, a gift, because as I sat down and began to prepare for the next two weeks, he allowed me to kind of decompress the last three years, and the last three years have been probably some of the most difficult that I've ever experienced in, uh, experienced in ministry. and it, it all started really with um, a young girl that had grown up in, in our youth group, her, her name was Katie. Um, it's a family that we are extremely close to, we definitely consider them family. Well, Katie, um, at the the young age of, of 20, uh, 23 I believe, um, She was having her first child. And everyone, of course, was so excited. And I remember getting the text that that little Asher was here, um, that she had given birth. And it was uh, just a huge blessing for the family. Um, And then I remember getting another update. It was a a day later that she was experiencing a lot of of pain in her abdomen. um, Just to keep her in our prayers, so we were praying for her. And then I got that text um, that said, we need you to come down. And uh, so I remember that day driving down to Scottsdale Shea and walking into the room, and you know when you walk into a room and you see people's faces and you, knew, you know something is, is wrong, something is uh, very serious. Um, so they had shared as I got there uh, with me that Katie had contracting, contracted something called necrotizing, necrotizing fasciitis, and it's as bad as it, it sounds. It's pretty much uh, a bacterial infection that attacks the tissue and just begins aggressively killing the tissue. And uh, um, so we, we sat and we prayed. She was in surgery. They were trying to get in front of um, uh, the bacteria. And, and really, without getting uh, too much into detail, you just start cutting and hope to get in front of, of that aggressive uh, bacteria as it kills the flesh. Um, the surgeon came in while we were praying and kind of explained all that he had done. Um, and said that going forward, it would be a a waiting game. So the next couple days, it was pretty much Katie fighting for her her life because of all the tissue that had to be removed. And uh, she ended up passing away about 48 hours after that initial uh, surgery. Um, A very difficult, difficult time for a very special family to us and a very special young lady. Around that same time, our head deacon uh, started to experience congestive heart failure. And so there was a couple of days where I was sitting in his hospital room, hanging out with him as he rested, preparing for Katie's memorial service. And uh, he ended up uh, going to be with the Lord a few uh, weeks after that. So just kind of, you know, that's kind of how life works, doesn't it? It's never just one one trial or one uh, one tragedy, they seem to come in pairs or in threes or in tens, it just kind of depends. Around that same time, my wife stepped into the role of director in our daycare at Calvary Central. And it was the first time since our oldest was born that she went back to work full time. She's been doing an amazing job, and I, she, I'm more and more proud of her every single day. But that was uh, unique to our family dynamic, having two parents working full-time and trying to keep up with all the things going on with the kids. And then, about a year and a half ago, I got a, uh, a surprise. A messenger from the Lord came and told me that I would be having another child. Now, it wasn't a messenger of the Lord. It was my wife. <laughs> crying out from the bathroom, babe, you got to come in here. And uh, I—that's w- when I walked in, and she said, "We're having another baby." And uh, our youngest at the time was eight, and this was not something that we had planned at all. We, in our, my mind and her mind, we were done. And I told her, "We're too old. <laughs> we're too old for this." And she said, "Well, it's happening." So just a busy and hard and and people, it it feels strange talking about this because people go through so much worse. Anytime you talk about the trials of life and the tragedies of life, you hear about someone else's story and you're like, what am I talking about? You know, but sometimes your story is, is your story. You can only experience really what God has been bringing you through. And, and as I was thinking about all kind of the chaos and the swirl of the last three years, I remembered a moment where I went to a pastoral luncheon with a group of pastors in our area. And it, a friend invited me, and it's not something that I usually go to, but I went to this luncheon and I sat down with a group of pastors at a table that I didn't know, I hadn't met before. And the theme of this luncheon was um, resting in the Lord. and. And they were talking about kind of how to process maybe the, the the struggles that you've been going through throughout the year. And so they 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 took a break, and all the pastors and at my table were going around sharing about what was going on in their lives. And these were mere strangers to me. And when it got to me, I just I started just vomiting all this stuff. That what a crude word. I just started just sharing all these things that were going on in my life and, and the challenges. And then after I was done, I remember walking to the car and I was kind of embarrassed. I'm like, I don't. why did I do that? that that's, not, that's not something that I do. You're supposed to put your head down like a good soldier of the Lord and you fight through it and you persevere and you keep going. But what I hadn't realized was the impact that all those things were having on my walk and my witness. I hadn't realized that I had kind of reverted to that short temper that I had as a young man before I knew Christ. I was starting to get frustrated with people, with interruptions. There was extended periods of sleeplessness as I lied awake and I worried about what the week would hold. And somehow in all of that, I had convinced myself that all of that, all of that anxiety and that worry and that sleeplessness, it was just simply sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That this walk was never supposed to be easy. God never promised that this life would be easy. And in fact, Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. So I was just adopting the persona of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief grief and my worry and stress. All of that was a welcome price to pay because Jesus promised that in this life we would have tribulation. But then I was listening to a message a few months back, and the pastor asked the question when you picture the face of Jesus, what do you picture? And obviously, we don't know what Jesus looked like. Most of the time when we picture the face of Jesus, we picture artist's rendition of him, or we we picture Jim Caviezel or something like that. But his question was rooted in this thought. Do you picture a man who was somber, serious, and stoic? And if you do, why? Because when you look at God's word, Jesus was a man that children were drawn to. One of the points that he made is that children are smart. They're not drawn to mean old Uncle Bill, who is crass and loud and rude, but they were drawn to the feet of Jesus Christ. And he went on to. Talk about the joy of the Lord, but that question stuck with me. How do I imagine the face of Jesus? Because I imagined him in that moment. I imagined him as stoic, somber, serious, and sad. And the question became, What has shaped my perception of Jesus? Why do I see him that way? Is it accurate? Is it biblical? That is such an important question. Not simply, How do you visualize Jesus? That can get a little bit strange, but what is your perception of the nature of Jesus Christ? Because as Tozer wrote, how you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so I began asking people, starting with my wife, how do you picture Jesus? When you picture his face, what do you see? And my wife said, well, smiling, welcoming. Gentle, calm. That's how I see him. And so I began to struggle with that. See, the author of Hebrews tells us that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So my perception and your perception of Jesus shapes our perception of God. <coughs> Jesus is God, he is the exact representation of God. And so I was embarrassed to admit. That my perception of God was being shaped by something other than His Word, and that's hard to admit as a pastor, whose one of my primary responsibilities is teaching the Word of God. Somehow, I had allowed my perception of God to be shaped by the world around me, my own trials, my own sufferings, and my own hang-ups, and not God's Word. See. Before I came to know Christ, and maybe some of you guys relate, I was a feelings junkie. I was a lover of pleasure, as Paul describes in the end times, we'll be lovers of pleasure, disobedient to parents. I mean, that whole list that he goes through, I I checked off every one of them before I came to know Christ. If it felt good, I would do it. I wanted to be God over my own feelings. And so when I came to know Christ, One of the early things that the Lord had to work out in me was that he wasn't going to be my next drug. He wasn't going to be Uh, Someone who I could turn to who would just immediately turn around my feelings and I'd go from spiritual experience to spiritual experience. His word was his word, and it was true regardless of how I felt. He was present, he was active in my life, and emotions lie, feelings lie, and he was my firm foundation. That's something that he had to establish early on. But sometimes when God corrects something in our lives, the enemy likes to come in and cause us to overcorrect. And I ended up at a place where not only was I not going to be ruled by my emotions, anything that felt good was wrong in my mind. And secondly, as a pastor, I've seen a lot of people hurt by the prosperity gospel, that word-faith movement where you take our greed and you put a stamp of spirituality on it and you call it something Other than what it is. It's our own greed and lust for more. And so my response to that was God doesn't want to make us happy. He wants to make us holy, which I think in and of itself can be true. He is not primarily concerned about our happiness. He is concerned about our holiness. But again, I overcorrected And I began to believe that God just is not concerned about our mental state. That it's not about feelings. It's not about happiness. It's not about joy. We put our head down and we're good soldiers for Christ. And we move forward day by day. But what I was missing was that reality that God is deeply concerned about the heart and the condition of our heart and the witness that we are in this world. And I became looking more and more like the world, not in the ways that we always think about. I think we're really good now as a body of Christ because we know that there is this temptation to conform to the world as individuals and as the body of Christ. And we're really good at keeping sex and drugs and rock and roll out of the front door, right? because we're not going to conform to that worldly way of thinking. But what we've missed is worry and anxiety and the cares of this world sneaking in the back. And somehow we've quantified it or justified it as, yes, being busy is being busy about the Lord's work. If I'm worried, that's fine because Jesus was a man of sorrows. If I'm crippled by anxiety, that's fine. Jesus went to the cross. I can suffer that but is that biblical we've been in the gospels for the last 36 weeks we've taken a kind of a different approach to teaching through the gospels we had finished revelation and we were talking about which gospel to go through matthew mark luke and john and individually uh we, Pastor John and I had the same idea and we came together and we brought it up and we're like, wow, God's obviously working in this. We have taken the Gospels and have gone through them chronologically. The events in the life of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, we have just gone uh, chronologically through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, depending on where that event takes place. And, and I've needed that. I've desperately needed that personally because I've been watching really how Jesus has trained up his disciples and his concern for their understanding of what it means to be a calm presence in a chaotic world. And really, you don't have to look any further than Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount to see his heart for his children. Because in Matthew chapter 5, as you begin the Sermon on the Mount, and again, the Sermon on the Mount... I have to be careful here, because a lot of times um, we're really good at taking a a section of scripture out of its context, and, and that's okay, but sometimes it's like standing at a painting with your nose touching that painting, and you can see colors and you can see shapes, but you really have no idea what you're looking at. And then you take a few steps back, and then you can see the entire canvas, and then you understand what that painting is. So just to give you an idea, and I'm sure many of you have been in the Lord for a long time, but this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching the world about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, a a kingdom that is very different than the kingdom of man. Different systems, different rules, different responsibilities, different joys, different things to celebrate. So Jesus is teaching the crowds about God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. And he's teaching people what it means to be a citizen of that very different kingdom, a kingdom that's different than the religious systems that were in place at the time, a system that, uh, a kingdom that's very different than the pagan practices of the time. And he starts with these words, blessed, nine statements about being blessed, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed. And if you look at the original Greek, and many of you probably already know this, that word blessed means what? Oh, how happy. But Jesus isn't concerned about our happiness, is he? Well, if we define that word happy in a worldly sense, you know, fleeting, here one moment, gone the next, that's what we do with deep spiritual truths, we apply our worldly understanding of those things, like love, it's not self-sacrificial, it's been diluted into something that's much more based on a feeling, and we've done that with happiness as well. But I I realize that in my attempt to make joy and happiness more than a feeling, I've actually made it less than a feeling, if that makes any sense. But Jesus says, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy is the man who realizes his lack and his need of a physician. That's the man that I've come for. Not those who think that they're well, but those who are poor and hungry and blind and naked and broken and unable to do anything about it. I've come for them. And I will fill them, Jesus says. I will comfort them. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And I will teach them to walk in my mercy, and they'll be merciful. I will give them my purity. I will give them peace with their creator. And they will become my peacemakers. That's the beginning of Jesus' message on the Sermon on the Mount. But then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And I thought to myself, there you go. See, it's okay to have anxiety. It's okay to be worried. It's okay to be stricken by grief and unable to move forward. It's okay to be short with people because of uh, all the chaos that's going on within your mind and within your life. But we need to understand what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. Because it doesn't mean adopting the anxiety of the world and the stress of the world and the exhaustion of the world. That's not what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those, blessed are you who, pe- when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me. See, Jesus is known as the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief for a very specific reason. And so let's look at the times that Jesus has found grieving in Scripture. John eleven thirty four, And he said, where have you laid him? You guys remember the story of Jesus' dear friend Lazarus. Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And Jesus said, don't worry. This is not a sickness that leads to death. And then Lazarus died. And then Jesus showed up. And Mary and Martha came running to him first and said, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Mary fell at his feet and said the same thing. And in John eleven thirty four, 34, Jesus says, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then if you have a hard time with scripture memorization, let me give you this one, verse 35. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Jesus wept. Jesus broke down and he cried. And many thought, oh, it's because of Lazarus' death. That doesn't make sense because Jesus was about to call Lazarus forth from the tomb. Jesus wept because he was about to perform a miracle that would go down in history, that we would still be talking about here on Sunday, January 19th. And the people still would not believe in him as the son of God. And Luke 19, 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, if you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now you are hidden Now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. This is Jesus speaking out over Jerusalem, Jerusalem prophesying over them. Verse 44, and they'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation why was jesus weeping over jerusalem he said i would have gathered you like a hand gathers its chicks but you were not willing jesus is known as the man of sorrows well acquainted with grief because of what he finds joy in his grief is rooted in his joy just like our lives The things that hurt us the most are really rooted in what we find the greatest pleasure in. The things that shake me to my core are things that happen to my kids. Because in all this world, they are the ones that I really care about the most. I find the most joy in them. I find joy in serving the Lord. I find a great amount of joy in the relationship that God has given me with my wife. And when those things are not right, that's where the sorrow and the pain comes in. See, our sorrow is usually rooted in our joy, just as it is with Jesus. And what does he find great joy in? We see it in the parable of the lost sheep. One sheep wanders off, and the shepherd does what? He leaves the ninety-nine. And he tracks down the one. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, let's party. Rejoice. Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus says that I tell you that in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What about the story of the prodigal son? Where God is represented as a father who gives his inheritance to this his young son who's demanding it before his father dies. And we know how that story goes. That young son goes and squanders it all and ends up living in a, a pigsty eating filth and he thinks to himself, man, my dad's servants eat better than this. And he returns home to his father and his father's waiting on the path and before his son even gets home he sees him down at the end of the path and he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him and he says quick bring the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet bring the fatted calf and kill it let's have a feast and let's celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he is alive again he was lost and he is found that sounds like pure joy to me. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews twelve two says, For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And the psalmist, and again the author of Hebrews, repeats this idea that the Messiah is anointed with the oil of gladness. And I go back through all of this because I want to set the stage and set the context for what Jesus is about to say. Because as he continues his Sermon on the Mount, he provides us the central theme really for this sermon. In Matthew 5.13, he says to his followers, the true disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus goes on to say that those good works are far, far more than moral behavior. In fact, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll know by no means enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to explain that we are the salt and the light, not because of what we do, but because who are, of who we are in him. He goes on and says, you have heard it said by those of old that you should not commit a murder. But I'm telling you, if you harbor anger in your heart, you're in danger of judgment. And if you, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you have lust for a woman in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. That's what Jesus meant by exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are concerned about outward acts of morality, Jesus said, I'm concerned about your heart. I want to transform you from the inside. He goes on to address the sanctity of marriage and the integrity of our word and what it means to love our enemies, not just our friends. The world is capable of loving its friends. He says, I am calling you to a higher level of righteousness, a righteousness that loves those that persecute you and speak all kinds of evil about you. I am using you, my body, followers of Christ, to tell the world my story. That's what it means to be the salt and the light. And it's at that point that we come to Matthew six twenty-five. It's at that point, after Jesus has established the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, and that as a body of Christ as a body of believers we are the salt and the light we are the testimony of God's good nature and his love for his creation and his desire to see men and women come to saving faith in his son Jesus Christ it is in the midst of all that that we come to this famous passage in Matthew 6:25 Therefore I say to you do not worry About your life. What you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. You can read that as, After all these things, the world (coughs) seeks, or the world worries about. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do not worry about these things, because that's what the world worries about. Paul uses similar language in his his letter to the church in Thessalonica. He says, you do not mourn, Like the world mourns. He's dealing with the issue of death and and this this idea that when someone died, you had to just uh, fall on your face and throw ashes on your head and tear your robe and cry out to the Lord. And, And it would be a contest almost of who's hurt more deeply by this person passing away. And Paul says, You don't mourn like the world, you know how this story ends you don't mourn like the world mourns and you don't worry like the world worries and that's where I came to the realization that my worry and stress and fatigue had become commonplace in my life and I was fitting right in with an overly stressed, overly worried easily irritated world I just looked the same is having a huge impact on my witness. And see, guys, that's that's the idea here. Our witness is far more than what we have been saved from; it's what we've been saved for. And that's a quiet confidence in the goodness of God. A trust. In Jesus Christ, in times of trial and pain and heartache and uncertainty and chaos, that quiet trust in Jesus Christ that he is good and that he is in control, that speaks loudly to a world in chaos. Isn't that what Jesus was teaching the disciples in the midst of the storm? both when Peter walked to Jesus on water and when Jesus was asleep in the boat. We'll take a deeper look at those things next week. It was cool. I I saw a picture of uh, Pastor Dennis on the Sea of Galilee, and that really brought it home for me as well. But isn't that what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and and then he'll worry about everything else? See, that's the irony of true joy. It can't be obtained by pursuing it directly. It's not like, hey, I need more joy in my life. I'm going to try to get it. I'm going to go after it. I want to find joy. No, we find it as we pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He takes care of everything else. My problem is, and and you've heard it said before, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you what? I guess I've only heard it before. (laughs) If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And I'm beginning to realize that there's not much different between bad and busy. Because if you're bad, you're not concerned about the will of God and what he's doing in this world. And if you're busy, you're too distracted to care about the will of God and what he's doing in this world. The outcome's are the same. Let me close. I'm not huge on statistics because most of you will forget all of these anyway. But I think these are really important. Let me give you just a picture of the condition of the world that we're living in today. A recent survey revealed that nearly half of Americans always or sometimes feel alone. 54% said they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. In Japan, there are more than half a million people under 40 who haven't left their house or interacted with anyone for the last six months. In Canada, the share of solo households is now over 30%. And across the European Union, it's 34%. In in 2015, researchers at UCLA discovered that social isolation triggers triggers cellular changes that result in chronic inflammation. And I don't know if you've seen the new study that just came out. Loneliness is just as dangerous as smoking two packs of cigarettes every day. And loneliness is an epidemic. A recent study has shown loneliness is as lethal as smoking 15 cigarettes. Major depression is on the rise in every people group. It's gone up 33% since 2013. 63% and There's been a 63% increase in youths aged 12 to 17. increase among young adults, 18 to 34. Suicide rates have increased 33% from 1999 to 2017. And it's now the second leading cause of death in young people 10 to 34 years old. (coughs) Guys, our world is in chaos. People are alone. They're depressed. They're confused. And clinical psychologists, they're trying to, track down the, so, the source of this, they think maybe it's social media or debt or de- decreased job security or lack of affordable housing, but we all know what it is. It's sin. It's man being cut off from our creator, our loving father. And it's easy to look at that and say, you know what? It's a result of sin. We proudly declare it because we have found the answer. You know, that's what happens when you push God out of every aspect of our society. You reap the consequences of it. But it's always easier to look out the window than it is to look in the mirror. And when you look inside the church today, what do we see? We see people that are worried, we see people that are stressed, we see people that are exhausted because of the frantic pace that has snuck into the church. You know, busy today is a badge of honor. And again, I'm, I, I say it all the time. How, how, how are things going? What are you up to? Oh, things are just busy. And it's almost something we say just because it's almost like a badge of honor. God's using me, you know. Not that we always say it for that, that reason. But we've come so accustomed to this frantic pace. But really, we're just adopting the worries of the world. We're seeing the consequences of it as well. We're seeing pastors and leaders who have fallen. We're seeing faithful servants who are physically and mentally burnt out. We're seeing division in the church because of bitterness. We're seeing harsh personalities rise to the top because they're more concerned about tasks than they are about people. And we're about getting stuff done, aren't we? But again, my mind goes back to that question. What do you see when you see the face of Jesus Christ? somewhere along the line, I had traded the joy of the Lord for that frantic pace of the world. I hadn't even decompressed, and I'm not trying to get into psychobabble, but I hadn't sat at the feet of Jesus and talked to him about the hurt and the pain that I had experienced over the last years because I was just putting my head down and fighting through like a good soldier. See, I'm convinced that we live in a time At this moment, here and now, we live in a time where the Lord wants to use the church to be a calming presence in this chaotic world. When there's so much confusion and anxiety, I truly believe he wants to use us to be a salt and a light. But for that to take place, he wants to cultivate a quiet confidence in him and while the world is operating at a breakneck speed and suffering the physical and mental consequences for it, we need to be found resting at the feet of Jesus Christ. Just like Mary, who had her sister busy in the kitchen, (coughs) stressing out over all that needed to be done. And what did she say to Jesus? Same question the disciples asked in the the storm. Don't you care, Martha said. I'm in the kitchen busy, working my tail off. Mary's lazily resting at your feet. Don't you care, Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Martha, you're worried and upset over many things. But only one thing is needed. And Mary has found the better thing. And that's not going to be taken away from her. So if you become accustomed to the stress and the worry and the exhaustion that you've convinced, and you've convinced yourself that it's just your cross to bear, my prayer is that you'd hear the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11:28, 28, where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And I will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. God, again, we are so grateful for your training and your teaching. And your patience with each one of us. Lord, I pray that in the confusion of the last few years and as I've tried to put all of those thoughts together in many words Lord I pray that you give this family this fellowship just a reassurance that you are good and that you're in control yes. you're a faithful father and you give good and perfect gifts and we know that you've never promised an easy life but that doesn't mean you're calling us to a life of stress and anxiety and worry in fact you've said the opposite do not worry My Father in heaven cares for you so much more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the fields. You have promised to take care of all of our needs, not our wants, but our needs. So, Lord, I pray that we would slow down and that we would return to that that place of sitting at your feet and learning from you and hanging on every word And just reflecting on what you're doing in our lives. So that we may go out and be a witness to this world. Not only in word. But in deed. And Lord, I pray against this idea that we need to operate at a breakneck speed. Where we move from one distraction to the next. I pray that those systems of the world, they don't infiltrate your true church. But instead... When the world looks at us they would see men and women that even in the midst of chaos and confusion and tragedy and trial there's a quiet trust so that they would ask why why isn't this affecting you why aren't you broken why aren't you screaming at god And our response will be because God is good and he's in control. Doesn't mean we don't hurt. But our trust in Jesus goes beyond that hurt. So Lord, cultivate that in us. I know this is a lifetime of training that will take us to that point. But help us to be good students. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.